We are looking at sin this morning, you'll be pleased to hear. Um, And it's a tricky topic. It's an old-fashioned word, you might say. But it is crucial to the Christian gospel. And in our series at the moment, we're on kind of episode two of what does it mean to be a Christian? And actually, our starting point for being a Christian is that we're sinners. That's our starting point. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the church often gets criticised, and you may have done the same for thinking it's a holy huddle of people who think they're somehow superior, who think they are more morally upright or something other. But actually, church, not just our church, but the whole of church, is full of sinners saved by grace. And so we can take a load off this morning if you think, oh dear, I'm coming here as a sinner. You're in very good company because we all are. We are all sinners saved by grace. So as we look at this subject of sin, what do we mean? Well, we mean, in essence, the things that we have done or not done that have separated us from God. In its purest sense, that's what sin is. And we live in a world, don't we, that has said, a little bit like Jesus' story here, go your own way, look after number one. Only pray to the God when you want him to do stuff for you, when you want to have stuff right now, like the son in the story. And that's kind of the world that we live in, that actually the message has been, we can please ourselves. I love this picture a friend shared with me this week, and you may have caught it on Facebook, um, about, I don't know if any of your children have ever drawn in indelible ink pictures on the walls of your house. Maybe particularly when you just had it decorated, I don't know. Uh, But the lovely thing about this is the little child has written, it says, marker on latex paint, um, is what's happened. And this, this was posted on Facebook. Your kids are going to do things they shouldn't. It helps if you married someone with a sense of humour. I guess all marriages are helped by that, aren't they? But actually, parenting is also helped by that because what this dad has done, he's gone out and he's bought a frame and he has framed the scribble as a masterpiece. And apparently there are quite a few of them because this this is number, I don't know what it is. And it's called Interrupted House, which I love. Um, And I love that. It made me smile uh, when I saw it this week when a friend shared it with me. Because it kind of, if it's not stretching the metaphor, says that we think that we've written stuff that's indelible ink that cannot be removed. And God says, I'm going to reframe that as your father with my love. I'm reframing your life as a masterpiece, the Bible says. That's what he calls our lives. We feel we bring this sketchy drawing that needs to be rubbed out or that isn't quite right, and the Father says, no, interrupted house, masterpiece. And all our lives are interrupted houses, if that's not stretching it too far. They're the scribbles that God frames and says, I'm going to work with that. And aren't we grateful that as sinners we can say, God will and does reframe our lives through Jesus. Now, I've got a bit of a tricky job to do today because I need to talk about sin, but Jesus is in episode four. Um, But I will be, (laughs) if it's all right with you, I will be referencing him quite a bit because he does come into it. Uh, But I was told not to go too far with it, so we'll see how we get to. Um, But it's Jesus telling the story, so that's a big tick at the beginning. Um, Jesus is telling this brilliant story. And I don't know about you, you might be tuning in today, it might be the first time you've heard it as John read it. But it may be that familiar. Familiarity sort of maybe even breeds contempt in that 
we lose the fact that this is a story of spiritual lostness. And both sons are lost. Whether we stayed close to home or whether we wandered right off, we are still sinners with a father that calls us home by his love. And it's a brilliant story. And Jesus is telling it to the people of the law, the religious people, the people who perhaps thought they weren't the sinners that needed grace. We don't know. But certainly they were all about the good works and the doing good and the doing well. And Jesus says, hang on a minute, you're criticizing me. And he was criticized for hanging out with prostitutes and sinners and having meals with them and having dinner with them. And these people are saying, hang on, why are you hanging out with these people? And so he tells three parables about spiritual lostness. And in each of the parables, there's the father looking out. There's the person pursuing. There's the love that won't let go. And that's true as we look at this. George Orwell says, For 200 years we have soared and soared and soared at the branch that we were sitting on. And in the end, much more suddenly than anyone had foreseen, our efforts were rewarded and down we came. But unfortunately, there has been a little mistake. The thing at the bottom was not a bed of roses after all. In other words, in society, we've sort of eroded the fact that perhaps we need the Bible or that perhaps we need a way to live, and we've soared away at it, and we've moved east of Eden, the Bible says, that when sin came into the world, right in the beginning in Genesis, right at the very beginning when there was a beautiful garden and when there was paradise, self crept in, and Adam and Eve said, no, we're going to live for ourselves, and that's when sin enters in, and that's the same for you and I, that as Mark told us, when he said, no, I'm going to run this thing my life, I'm going to run it my way, sin creeps in. And that's what happened in Genesis and all the way through the Old Testament. Interestingly, we see people moving east of Eden, further and further away from that paradise. And murder comes in and sin comes in and distortion of self comes in. Interestingly, Richard Dawkins, the great atheist philosopher, claims that in a secular society, he believes that we will all move towards a kinder and more civilized world. Do we see that happening? Not really, do we? And in yet another commentary, he says, I kind of wish that God was real because I feel like we need a sort of CCTV system that is watching over us to make sure we don't do really bad things. So in one sense, he said, let's, let's tear all that up. But he said, we're missing God. And that's the world that we live in as well. We live in a world that does kind of miss God a bit. I was privileged to go out with some friends who I used to be with in uh, salt mine years ago. And a guy came along who has totally renounced God. And at the end of the time, we had a lovely time together. But at the end of the time, he said, I can't work out whether it's God I miss or you guys. Then it's both, isn't it? Because if we're Christians, we have that same love that the Father has to share with his worlds. The Queen was reported not long before she died to say that the happiest people that she met in her travels across the world were all those who were putting others' needs before themselves, who were seeking serving others, not taking the road of self. Sin is about the good that we don't do and the mess that we make as we please ourselves. 1 John 3 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees someone in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God live in that person? 
And I was challenged by that really this week. Because it's easy to think of sin as all the stuff that we do wrong and we can list them and we can list them. But actually, where are the opportunities for us to show love, to show kindness? And the thing that sin does is it distorts our view of ourselves, of others, and of God. In his play, The Trial, Franz Kafka, a really great playwright, has this protagonist, this main character, who is arrested and thrown into prison, and he spends the whole play trying to find out what it actually is that he's done. Because he can think of so many things that he could have been arrested for, but he doesn't quite know what the conviction actually is. And we can be a bit like that. We can store up things. And Kafka wrote this when he was questioned about why he wrote the play. He says, the state in which we find ourselves in today is sinful, quite independent of any guilt. In other words, we live in a world now where we don't believe in judgment, we don't believe in sin, and yet we still feel there is something wrong with us. Now, Kafka was, was really, really interested in Christianity. I don't know whether he actually made a commitment, but he was certainly fascinated about the way that the world was traveling away from a structure of godliness and teaching around forgiveness and redemption. And he saw that in what he wrote. So the concept of sin, what if it's a liberating truth? Because actually, some of the commentaries that I've read this week have really helped me to see that sin is good news for the Christian. Why? Because it keeps us coming home. It keeps us running back to him. And as all of us know to be true, what if it's a liberating truth? And Jesus thought so. That's why he told this story. And he challenges those who would hang out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. That was always a tough one for me growing up as the daughter of a, a chief inspector of taxes. So whenever they mentioned tax collectors being sinners in Sunday school, my sister and I wouldn't meet anyone's eyes and say, say, Dad does something else. Um, <laughs> but that was the vibe. That was definitely the reputation that Jesus was building, that he hung out with sinners. Christianity, says Pascal in his uh, Ponces, has taught us that humanity is both judge over all things and yet refuse of the universe, immeasurably valued and yet deeply flawed. If you diminish something already worthless, it is hardly worth noting. But if you debase the glory of the created order, it is a cosmic scandal. And I love that because there's a sense of the scandal of sin and the beauty of what God has created in you. God sees you as that masterpiece, that beautiful picture, that work in progress. And if we debase the glory of the order, the created order, it is a cosmic scandal. So how do we see ourselves in the light of sin, looking at the lost son? How do we see others looking at the older brother? And then how do we see God? Well, the younger son sees freedom in going off and doing his own thing, in spending his inheritance, in having his pleasure now in this earth, in living for himself. But as the days go on, he misses God, if you like. He misses the father. He misses home. He's hungry, he's destitute. And he has this moment, which I think is really powerful for us. He has a moment of condemnation, but God doesn't leave it there. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's the condemnation part. But the good news is conviction comes. And he says, 
I'll go home. And many times, and I think there's some Catholic guilt that some of us perhaps still wear, that says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son because I'm a sinner, but doesn't do the second part that is conviction that says, I need to go home. I need to say, God, forgive me. I need to run home. And that actually what is what happens with this first son, is he says, I- I'm not worthy of any of this. I've messed up big time. And if that's you and you're tuning in today or you're doing church at home or you're here in the room and there's a quiet hidden sin in your heart and you think almost perhaps even you fear that you've committed a sin that is unforgivable, God says to you, come home. His forgiveness, his grace, his mercy says, come home. I love you. I love you. And what shame does, and we know this, is it distorts our view of ourselves. It says, as Brené Brown puts it, that we are incapable of any change. And that is not the truth of this story. The truth is that there is a father who waits for this guy to come home. That actually he takes control, he finally repents, he says sorry, and he falls into the arms of a loving God. In Romans 3, verse 23, it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's why we can say we are all sinners. And there's an outrageous grace in Christianity, isn't there? That sometimes can be quite uncomfortable as we see in this passage. Because we get that the lost son goes off and does terrible things. And maybe we feel a bit more like the older brother. And we think, yeah, he comes back and suddenly, you know, the father's giving it all this. And actually there's a resentment because we think, well, I've always been quite a good person, really. You know, my testimony isn't that I murdered someone and that that then I ended up in prison. And that, you know, I, I stayed close to home. I did good things. I kept your rules. But actually, this next son is still lost. And he's lost in a very different way as we look at him. This son shows us very importantly how we see each other. Because when he sees the party, when he sees the fatted calf and maybe smells it cooking, when he sees the celebration for this undeserving poor that he sees in his brother, there's a sense of superiority and a sense of resentment. And the father, and please note this because I felt that this was really important for us this morning, the father comes out of the party in the same way as he goes out to meet the first son. So we might know, if you know the story, that the father waits every day waiting for the lost son to return. He thinks he might be dead and he waits for him. But the other side of it with this son is that the father still comes out of the party to see if he's all right. In other words, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin is a great equalizer in that we have all got that spiritual lostness without a saviour that is Jesus. And the beautiful thing about our God is he sent someone out of the party of heaven, which is Jesus. He left the party of heaven for you and for me. Whether we feel we were a really good person, whether we feel we really messed up. And so this changes how we see others. We cannot look at others through eyes of superiority Our entitlement that we know that has crept in, whether that's to do with gender, whether that's to do with race, we know that a sort of superiority, like the lost son here, the elder son, we can sort of think, oh yeah, 
that person is undeserving. One of the reasons we as a church are gathering in a few weeks' time with many, many churches across this city for time for change is because we want to repent together of our entitlement and our ignorance around racism. We're doing that together. We're not even having our our usual prayer gathering here because we want to go, as many of you did last year, to say we repent. Because part of sin can be that we feel this sort of moral superiority, which is what the the second son does. He feels that. He's too preoccupied with, "I've, I've led a good life. And one thing that God showed me this week as I was looking at it is both of these guys want the father for his stuff and not for his heart. Now, we might think that's just the first guy, but actually, it's both. Because the other one says, well, I was working really hard for the same kind of inheritance. I was doing it a different way. And I felt God really speak to me even yesterday about this. That say, you know, sometimes you can be running around doing lots of good things and thinking that's what your faith is all about. But actually, he says, have I got your heart? Have I got your love? We are so privileged here at Riverside with the worship teams that week in, week out, help us sing words that declare our love for God. But sometimes I'm conscious that I'm singing the words and am I really thinking, God, you have my heart. You have my heart. I love you. And there is so much love And and as we come towards the final piece, there is so much love in this story for both sons. The tone doesn't change. The father speaks so lovingly to both who have messed up. Both who have, if you like, missed out in different ways. So we're alienated by sin from one another, like these two brothers, jealous, and then finding God say, no, come back to me, trust me, seek first me, my kingdom. Romans 5 verse 8 says, but God proves his love for us. He proved it while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. And finally, sin distorts our view of God. Maybe sometimes it makes us hold him at a distance. Maybe sometimes it means that we feel, well, I can't look into your face, God. And yet we have this incredible picture from Jesus who knew more than anyone the infinite, incredible love of the Father who says the Father waits every day to see you come home. And that's not just in this life, that's eternally. There's a passage in the Old Testament in Zechariah, Zechariah 3, where the vision comes to Zechariah and Joshua is standing before the holy altar, before a holy angel, and he is covered in filth. Some say excrement, but he is covered from top to toe in filth, trying to stand in the holy place. And Zechariah is given a vision and he says, oh, I tried to put the holy turban on him, dress him in the royal robes, put the robes of cleanliness on him to cover all the filth. And then right at the end of the vision in Zechariah 3, he has this brilliant phrase that says, but one day someone will come who will remove sin in a day from this land, which is Jesus. It's a prophecy in the Old Testament of Jesus who came and in one day in dying and then three days later in being raised again. We have this amazing homecoming in him. No matter 
whether we have sinned greatly or we feel we haven't sinned very much. The same is true, that we are covered in filthy rags. The Bible's very clear about that. But we have the same robe that the father holds out for the lost son. Interestingly, he holds out a robe, the best robe, and says, I'm going to put that on him. I'm going to put a ring on his finger. I'm going to put shoes on his feet. And I'm going to kill the fattened calf. And in that day, that was the biggest honor. That was the biggest feast. And that's how he looks at you. Every single one of us, whether you're a believer today or whether you feel that you have known Jesus for many, many years, Jesus would still say to you, I know that the Father loves you. I know that even where things aren't perhaps working out the way that you thought, like for the older son, trust him because he loves you. Trust him for that embrace of love, that covering of righteousness, that royal robe. And so as we respond today, as we look at how sin separates us from each other, taints our view of ourself and taints our view of God. I really felt that God just wanted us to really perhaps spend some time in the song of putting ourselves in both places. The first lost son in terms of the ways that we know that we have messed up and wandered off and tried to run our lives our way. But also to spend a little bit of time thinking about, hang on, have we just been caught up in a busy Christianity that needs to just come back and say, actually, God, you have my heart. My life is not straightforward, but you have my heart. And I'm going to say again, I trust you. I trust you that you're a loving father who wants to give good gifts to me. You're the same loving father that Jesus knew that throws parties for sinners. And that's our God. That's our God. And he sees you not as dressed in filthy rags, but clothed in his righteousness. That's what the Bible says through Jesus. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him.